Thanks for joining us on this very special episode of Asking for a Mate. Today, we've got a very special guest. I'm absolutely stoked to have him on the show. I'll introduce him a little bit later. But I just wanted to explain why it's a special episode today. Um, we obviously Asking for a Mate, a podcast that is all about going deep and having guys that are not afraid to go deep. So each month, I get to ask questions to my mates and see what's under their thick skin. And today we are doing a special episode about Mental Health Awareness Day. It's on tomorrow. We're recording a day early, so I've got time to edit. Um, And the person that we're having today, and we got the chance to ask a bunch of questions to, is I think kind of a professional of top questions. He's got a lot more experience than me in that field. Uh, And this is Joel Pilgrim. So Joel... um, just in 30, I think I'm just amazed at this fact because he's already a CEO and a founder of an amazing charity called Waves Wellness and he's a mental health advocate that created this charity based all around self-therapy and I think I had never heard about it before and I'm just completely in awe. So welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you, Cece. Happy World Mental Health Day. Yay! first thing that I wanted to chat with Joel about today is around a piece that you wrote uh, quite a few months ago, I think, and it was around loneliness. And I was quite amazed by this and a bit shocked because as much as I know that you are all about mental health, I was quite surprised to like read a piece about loneliness, someone just coming forward and confessing kind of like, that you've had a moment like this in your life. Do you mind just explaining to us like how you identified this and how you dealt with this as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I've done a lot of work with the Movember Foundation over the years and they actually put me in touch with SBS Insight. And basically I I got on the show and I was on their panel around the theme of loneliness. And it was really interesting because they're almost challenging the idea of, of what it means to be lonely. And for me, I actually didn't, didn't consider myself lonely for so long at that period in my life because I didn't quite understand it. I, I also didn't know what was going on for me. So generally loneliness is where you have a lack of connection with the people around you, whether it's your friends, your family, your colleagues. You might be going through the daily motions of your, your job and, and everything seems like it's okay, but you might not be flourishing. You might not be feeling that sense of joy and you might not have the people around you that you actually want and that you crave. And for me, I I found that I was actually pushing people away and I was actually socially isolating because of the amount of work that I had on my shoulders. And it was almost the fact that I was trying to to start this charity a few years ago and I was trying so hard to push, push, push that I just didn't respect my own mental health and wellbeing. I also didn't place an emphasis on building those connections and relationships or more so maintaining them and it wasn't until I, I got to a pretty dark place that I was like, shit, I really need to change this. i got to do something about this before it becomes a real problem. Yeah. So how, what did you do once you've actually identified that you, you felt lonely? Is that something that you talked to someone about? Yeah, it was, it was actually my girlfriend at the time who is now my wife and she was amazing at helping me understand what was going on and she was my sounding board. And she does a great job of that. She's almost like my um, 
I'm her avatar. I, I act out her ideas and all sorts of different things. But she actually said to me, like, look, are you okay? Like, do you need some help? And I, and I actually sort of, at the time I was seeing a psychologist and, and I started to dive into these, these topics with her and it became really apparent that that was what was going on. But it was so helpful to, to talk about it and it was just like a balloon popping like this release of tension it was like it's okay to feel like this but it's also normal when you're going through what you're going through. Yeah. I, one thing that kind of shocked me is when I was reading a piece, it, it really made me think about my own journey and, and thinking about having moved to a country like Australia and a lot of people either moved to Australia or have moved to another country and, and the feeling sometimes that, yeah, that when you're new somewhere uh, or something changes in your life, whether you change job or you lose a partner, like we all go through a sense of loneliness. But I kind of like realize as well that if I were going through loneliness right now, I would have actually, I would feel super uncomfortable addressing this with my friends because I don't know, how do you reach out to your friends being like, I feel lonely? Yeah, there's a stigma, right? And it's yeah. almost like if you're lonely or if you're if you're feeling that sense of loneliness, what do you say? Yeah. Like how do you start that conversation? Do I go up to my friends and say, I almost want to put the word clingy on this right now because I go up to a friend and say, hey, mate, how are you going? Yeah, all right, yeah, what's going on with you? I'm, I'm feeling lonely. Can we hang out? And it's, it's almost, it just sounds gross in my head but that's, that's a personal stigma. It's like a, a sense of uncomfortability because we're not used to speaking like that. Completely. Especially as Australian men where we're taught to be rough, tough and, you know, we're good, we've got this but – I'm the first person to call bullshit on that because, <laughs> first of all, no one has their shit together. Yeah. Everyone's going through a battle that you have no idea what they're dealing with yeah. and everyone thinks that the people around them are killing it when, in fact, everyone's going through the same stuff. Completely. They're struggling. They're going, uh, that person looks like they're killing it and, and that's where social media comes in. That's where the whole idea of comparing yourself, scrolling through a feed and seeing all these photos of people who – the perception that you have of them is that they're killing it when really they've taken a hundred photos to get that one photo on Instagram or they're actually feeling shit and they're putting that up to be able to put out this facade. And I was one of those people that was doing that. Have you changed your behavior since then on, on social media? I mean, I have. Yeah. There's a, there's an idea that you've got to be present and you've got to be posting regularly and it's Instagram because it's instant and you've got to have something up every day. And I just, I just can't stand it. <laughs> so a lot of people will say like, oh, you didn't know that I was going overseas and no, sorry, because I actually don't sit there and scroll for hours a day and check my feed like that. I get on, I put a post up, I, I do a bit of social media for work so I have to do that. Um, and I, I find that when I'm not travelling mentally well, I don't spend as much time on social media and it's like a, a correlation and it's really strong to see that. I am not doing poorly at the moment but I haven't put a post up in a week. Yeah. And it feels great. Yeah. I have a feeling that loneliness could be also enhanced by the fact that everyone lives through social media, that if I want to understand what my friend is up to, I'll just go on social media rather than just call them. Mm. Like literally I don't think I've called a friend in a long time to say like what's happening. I'll probably just go on social media first. Well, that's my challenge to you. Three friends this week. Three friends this week. Yeah, you got to call them. Cool. Um, Not my parents. This doesn't count, right? They're your family, not your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um, look, I, I think that in this day and age, social media is at the forefront of our minds with the idea of connection and and all the, the alter being loneliness. 
because it is a part of our lives. It's everywhere. But it's also a way that we've learned how to communicate with people. And sometimes the traditional means of communication are, are overlooked. And in my opinion, they need to be uncovered and used more because that way of connecting with someone over a social medium is far less um, effective than if you're having a real conversation in person with them or even on the phone where you can you can communicate in that that effective emotional way. And for me, I love the idea of being able to call a friend up and say, hey, mate, how are you going? What's going on? You know, let's, let's yarn. We haven't caught up in ages. And I'll use my time driving in the car. I spend a fair bit of time in the car and I'll just call different friends here and there. And I don't think that's done enough. I don't think that people have honest conversations enough yeah. in that sort of medium. And over the last few years, being a mental health advocate and having the conversations and being a part of all of these sort of mental health forums, people are starting to see that I'm a person that they can come and talk to. Yeah. And in a professional sense, of, of course, a lot of people will come my way and try and talk about that stuff. But in a private sense, a lot of my friends are like, oh, you're one of the only people I can talk to about this stuff. And there's a problem with that. Like yeah. it's great. I love being able to be there for my buddies, but I think they also need to feel like they can talk to a lot of people about these things, not just someone who puts their hand up and goes, hey, I'm good to talk about this stuff yeah. because I'm an advocate. Why do you think that's the case that guys, well, I mean, People in general feel afraid of reaching out to someone and saying, I'm not, I'm not okay. Especially men, we feel like we have to have it all together and yeah. we have to be strong. And there's this perception of, of being there for your partner or it might be, you know, the, your friends will think you're weak. And that, that sense of weakness is one where people will, will struggle to let anyone in or open up around what's really going on because they don't want to be seen to be weak. They don't want to be seen to not having their shit together like we talked about earlier. But as soon as you do let them in, they realise that, well, hey, it's not a, a deficit. It's just what you're going through and it's situational. And I can bet you, you're sure as shit going through the same thing as your other friend but you just both don't know because you haven't talked yeah. about it. Yeah. So do you think that by being vulnerable first, then you kind of unlock a situation where then the other person is comfortable feeling uh, looking vulnerable to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I say vulnerability is power and Brené Brown is massive on that. The idea of vulnerability is something where if, if you let down your guard and you let someone in, you're allowing them to see that you're approachable. Yeah. that you've had shared experiences and it bridges a, a divide between you two a whole lot quicker, whether it's in a professional sense or in a personal relationship sense. If you're letting your guard down and letting that person understand who the real you is, that's a better way than ever to connect with someone. Yeah. So when was the last time that you were vulnerable that you can remember? Last week. Last week? Yeah. On the phone with my dad. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've actually... Never really had super deep conversations with my dad. Okay. But over the last few weeks and months, it's been amazing. We've just started to yarn every week on the phone and have some really deep chats about some really interesting things. And we're getting to know each other more, but we're also supporting each other more because we're allowing each other in. Yeah. What, what was it like uh, when you were growing up, the relationship with your dad, in terms of, I guess, the role model point of view and, and the – how can I say that? The the things that he kind of wanted to distill in you as what it was like to be a man or what you should be like as a man. It's hard to draw proper examples because for me 
looking back on my childhood, it was more around getting outside, enjoying nature and doing physical activity, lots of different sports and spending time with family, going away on holidays. There was no real conversations about the idea of opening up or sharing or or being forthcoming with that sort of information. And more so in their era than than ours, our parents were taught to to get on with it. And that uh, mental health issues, no, there's no such thing. Just get on with it. It's called you need a spoonful of cement and harden up. And and that I feel like is a is changing a lot. Yeah. Over the last you know, eight to I'd say five to eight years, the, the mental health landscape has changed a lot. We we definitely have a lot of work to do from here on out. But the way that our parents learnt this sort of stuff is very different to the way that we're communicating about it. So I'm really excited to see that shift, but it's also interesting to see the shift in their generation as well. Yeah, do you do you see that? Do you feel that the older generation is kind of starting to to think about the way um, they should have potentially changed their approach to mental health, talking to their kids or raising them or having tougher conversation with them or not not to that extent? Yeah, it, it's a toughie. I think that they they mean well and they want to, but there's a divide or a disconnect more so that they don't quite understand the importance of it. Mm. It's it's easy to say we need to focus on our mental health because then we can support each other. But then being able to walk the walk is the next step. And whether it's in this sort of private personal setting or whether it's in the corporate landscape where we work a lot with waves of wellness, we're finding that the people from that generation and above or older are are really struggling to grasp that. Whereas the young people are saying, fuck yeah, let's do this. Let's talk about this. Let's have these really hard conversations because that way we can actually get through this together. It's very interesting that you're mentioning this and talking about your dad. Like all the conversations I've had recently uh, and also through the podcast, talking to Australian men, a lot of them said that with their parents, it was a lot of like, you're a man, just bottle it up. You shouldn't be crying. You're not allowed to cry. Crying is for little girls. Mm. Was it something that you felt like when you were growing up as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had two older sisters, so I found that my brother and I would talk probably more than most people. Um, but even then, we're twins and, and I find that I was having those conversations probably a little bit more. Um, I went to university with 120 women in a, in a female orientated course, occupational therapy. And I found that was, um, it was tough, but it was also a great opportunity for me to, to sort of break down that stereotype a little bit. And I then, I don't know if you can call it, I became more emotional, but I, I found it easier to talk about my emotions. I found it easier to have those conversations with the girlfriends at uni who were in our social group and and whether they were talking about their makeup or their period or whatever it was, it was like, all right, I'm here and I'm dealing with this. So that I don't think that my Aussie mates are really good at being friends with women. And ever since I've been in Australia for the last three, four years, I've been really annoyed at the fact that you can see at a table, clearly you have girls one side, boys the other side. And when you have a catch up, you catch up only with your girlfriends. Like it's only in Australia or I don't know, at least compared to Europe, that you go to a restaurant and you've got a table full of women that is beyond noisy and getting drunk and then you've got a table just full of guys looking at the girls over. <laughs> I don't understand. Like I know I know you've got a higher proportion of, of private schools that are um, non, uh, what do you call it in, in Australia, the non-co-ed schools. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I kind of like probably don't really agree with that but – even beyond that, I feel there is a massive gender division that we're seeing in Australia. Yeah. And you are clearly the opposite of it. 
hey, let me let me assure you, I'm an outlier, CC. I'm not a normal bloke. <laughs> I, I can have the conversations that a lot of people can't and and I, I love doing that and, and I love challenging people to try it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what the podcast is about as well. Mm. But, yeah, I think your, your story about having kind of be forced to be around 120 women made you probably be more comfortable about being around women and becoming friends with them. And I think that there's definitely something that would change maybe a little bit. We talk about emotions, feelings and stuff. Should we create a little bit more connections between guys, like boys and girls, even from a younger age or something, and, and really kind of creating a, a sense of um, like it's not uh, like a friendship, mm-hmm. literally, where you can – because I think, you know, uh, what, my, what I'm seeing is the fact that relationships between guys and girls are only purely for kind of mating purposes. Romantic. Romantic. Yeah sex mm. um which well they don't have to be you don't have to be and you don't want to be right if, mm. if it's for sex you want to seem to be like the strongest the best whereas if you just have a friendship it's so much more easy to just be like fuck i'm having a shit day or this happened to me mm. i feel absolutely and i i feel that there's a there's a big perception that if you're if it's a girl and and, and a guy they should be romantically involved or, or maybe it's a perception of men that if I have a relationship with a girl, then it, that's what it is. It's it's for that romantic sense. I feel that there's also a sense of judgment and an expectation in society that, oh, those two must be together because it's a male, male and female. And it's quite a, a, um, a sexually biased view for, you know, straight relationship, for example. But if you've got a guy and a girl interacting with each other, it would be easy to assume that, oh, maybe they're seeing each other or they're dating or what have you. Whereas if a guy hangs out with a girl who's not his girlfriend and has a a girlfriend at the time, there's even an an aspect of, is my girlfriend going to get jealous? Am I going to have to like pretend I'm not seeing this person or how's that going to go down? And it's it's almost this sense of uncomfortability because you're not feeling like you can have those real relationships with women. So do you feel it's the same for you that you can't really have girlfriends? No. Like friends that are girl? No, no. not at all. No. I, I found that early on when I had different girlfriends uh, in a romantic sense, the ones that were a little, how do you say it? Possessive. <laughs> Controlling possessive. <laughs> Control is a bit stronger than possessive. No, no they, they were jealous. Yeah. And, and it was hard to provide rationale as to, hey, these are my friends. I'm not interested in them at all. We have a friendship. Yeah. We go to school together. We might we work together, whatever it is. And I've always managed to, ha- to have um, really strong relationships with my friends that are girls. And I, I really valued that. But the best part about it is that my wife is so supportive and she understands that and she also knows who I am. Yeah. So she's not going to sit there and go, well, I don't want you catching up with this person, where I've seen a lot of women do that. Because yeah. they're not secure in themselves and they don't have the ability to say, yeah, go for it, babe. You know, hang out with who you would like. I'm going to be here waiting. Or, or hang out with my male mates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like when you put men together, it's a little bit harder for them to connect and to actually have true conversations. Uh, if you put them with women around, they might actually be more open. Like if there is a sense of braggability between guys. Do you say braggability? Yeah. Or, I don't know. What yeah. You mean. No, I hear you. I just made up a word. I think well, – well, uh, let me talk professionally. So I've, I've seen this firsthand with the focus groups that we did when we were constructing our men's mental health program in partnership with Movember Foundation. And we actually set out with 20 men and we said, 
what do you want in this program and what's going to help you have these really important conversations about your wellness? And there was a, not unanimous, it was probably like 80% of the men were like, we want women in this group to be able to help us open up. Wow. We want women to be able to have the more deep conversations that help inspire us to dive to that depth. And Movember were really shocked by that. They were like, wow, that's really interesting sort of stuff because the girls then became a really integral part of the program because they were so helpful in getting the guys to share and open up. And they that you would always find the girls were opening up first and then the guys would follow suit. But it was challenging because there were so many men that were wanting to do this program that we had to then prioritise them because it was all about the men. And it was about being able to say if we've got 300 people on a waiting list and and 200 of them are men, we've got to try and get them through a program. Um, so, yeah, what, what we found is that, that the girls help the guys open up. In, in a personal sense, I feel like that's the same way. If we're going to have those important conversations with a guy and a guy, you've got to almost have an in or an example or doing an activity. And I call it third-person activity while doing. And the idea of being able to go for a surf with a mate and have a yarn while you're out the back of the waves or you see those promotional videos of driving a car and having a conversation shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. There, there's a there's a thing about men not being able to look each other in the eye and I struggle to put a finger on what that is, but it's just a, a comfortability in doing something and it's almost a distraction to be able to allow you to dive and immerse yourself in that conversation of, of meaning. Amazing. Mm. So in your – because you've got a lot of experience having very in-depth emotional conversations or, or tough discussions with a lot of people, including guys. Uh, I know you mentioned going for a surf and, and having that, but how do you, um, how could you explain to someone how to reach out and make sure that you've got an honest conversation with your mates? So we're talking about the person who needs the help or the one that's the friend that wants to help the f- them? I mean, we can cover both because sure. I, I guess, yeah. Anyway. Sure. So the first would be if you're struggling yourself and a lot of the time people won't reach out because they're worried about being judged and they're worried about what people are going to think about them. Will it decrease my chances of getting a job, etc.? But the important thing to note is that your employees, your friends, everyone understands and they will understand when you share. But there's almost this self-perception that no one's ever going to understand me and I can't share this. As soon as you do, then you'll understand that, that first of all, that weight is lifted off your shoulders, but then... If they're the right person for, to talk to about it, they're going to support you in a really controlled and caring way. Now, ways to reach out when you're struggling might be, hey, can we have a yarn or can we just go for a coffee? Or I'm finding it tough at the moment and I, I find it really hard to talk about it. Or it might even be, um, have you saw this this documentary? It's about mental health and blah, blah, blah. And it gives you a way of being able to then draw the conversation back to you in, in a really comfortable manner. Now, on the other hand, if you're someone who is a friend that is just you're on the receiving end of that, you've had a friend reach out to you that is struggling and they say, hey, I'm really having a tough time at the moment, the first stigma that people have is that you have to have all the answers and you, if you don't know what to say, then you can't say anything. You don't want to make it worse. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there that are a crock of shit. If you're there for that person in a sense that you're listening, you're a shoulder to lean on, then you've done your job and you're not a professional. So you don't have to come up with all the answers or the, the the care plan for that individual. It's just about being able to ask the right questions. Yeah. How long have you been feeling like that? You know, is there anything I can do for you? Yeah. Are you okay? You know, what does that feel like? 
And if you're able to start to peel back those layers of the onion, in Shrek's words, it's all <laughs> it's all about being able to 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 give them opportunities to open up. Yeah. And it, and I guess you're you're asking the questions. You're following up, but you're also re- you're referring on if there is something that you're really concerned about. You might know someone that you, that you can talk to more about this and say, "Hey, confidentially, I've got this friend who's really in deep in the gutter at the moment. They're struggling." How can I best support them? But also what are the services that you think that I can refer them to? And there's a lot of things out there. But the first port of call should be the GP because a lot of people don't realise you go to your doctor for everything physical health related. You can also go there for your mental health. Oh, my God, the number of shit that my GP knows about me. Mm -hmm. I don't know how she still looks me in the eye and not judge me. Well, she's seen you in some pretty strange positions I'm sure as well, right? Strange positions. She's had stories. Oh, my God. But anyway, so yeah, the GP definitely is is a is a great advice. And it's it's called a mental health care plan. So you yeah. you will say to your GP, look, I'm I'm finding it tough at the moment yeah. in terms of anxiety or depression yeah. or anything else mental health related, and they will actually give you free sessions to go and see a GP. Um, the GP will give you a referral to free mm-hmm. sessions to see a psychologist. I thought it was kind of like you have to sound like a nut bag to get access to those free sessions. No, you don't have to have the craziest story. Hey, I I do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's unreal. So yeah. instead of downloading on my friends and, and family all the time, I find that it's amazing to go and see a fellow mental health professional or if, if you're if your Joe Blog's down the street going to see a, a counsellor, a psychologist, a psychotherapist, whatever it is, that is an opportunity for you to unload all of your baggage yeah. without any judgment but also not an expectation that you're going to have to then hear back from them or anything like that you're paying this person to hear your shit. So you're allowed to unload on them and it just feels incredible. But they also give you some really useful skills and strategies to cope, to manage, to to maybe even get through that work-related stress that you're dealing with at the moment or the pressure of all this stuff around you that's building up. So what triggered you on going to see uh, that professional in the first place? Yeah, I'd say about three or four years ago. My timeline's pretty pretty rough. I'd say about that long ago, I, I found that I was just feeling a little bit glum. I, was, I wasn't firing all, on all cylinders. I wasn't feeling really motivated to get up and go surfing. I was feeling like I was just sinking under this like melting pressure of like an, a snow rolling down the hill. And it was because I put myself in that position and I had such high expectations of myself to just go, go, go. But like I said earlier, in that time, I found that I was just pushing so hard that I was just had my blinkers on. Nothing else around me mattered and I wasn't considering all the important things that, that should be considered in your life. So at that point I was like, wow, I need help. And it, it was conversations with the love, the loved ones around me that actually helped me realise that. Yeah. You seem like an extremely ambitious person. I mean I mentioned in the beginning you're only 30. You, you made me question my own life when I realised <laughs> that you were only 30. Thank you, Joel, for that. <laughs> No, it's amazing to have people to to kind of show you the way and show you that even when you are that young and, you know, some people might say that you're not that young, but I still think that it's very young to have have achieved so much. It must also come with quite a bit of pressure. And And I know you do amazing work helping other people, but what is it like to have this huge um, vision that you have to really help a lot of people struggling with mental health issues with your program. Having a massive vision is really challenging when you look too far ahead and you've got this massive blue sky vision that's just incredible and it's pie in the sky, but you've also got to make sure that you've got the, the foundations right. 
And for so long I wasn't building the blocks of the foundations enough and strong enough to be able to hold what was coming. And it wasn't until I realised that I needed to hire my weakness and my weakness is organisation and, and doing the, the on-the-ground sort of stuff. I've got a two I see at Waves of Wellness, Mark Maselli, and he's incredible as a program coordinator and he's just so structured and I'm just like, well done, man, like you're killing it because I'm thinking so far ahead that I'm just not present enough. And for me I need to tone it back a little bit and I need to focus on what the here and now is. The pressure is also self-induced sometimes where being ambitious and having those big goals and, and wanting everything yesterday it's tough. Like I was actually having this conversation with my wife last night and and those ambitions sometimes become a little bit of a, a speed bump or not a roadblock but they get in the way a little bit because you're not considering the, the people around you as well and the, the relationships that, that you need to maintain and foster rather than just pushing ahead and just going for it. And, um, yeah, I mean I could talk all day about this but the idea of being able to be measured, be be controlled and, and doing things in a in a – slow pace to build up is is really important to me Mm. throughout your journey with creating and launching waves of wellness did you or even before that because i think you you've known quite since a young age that you you were ambitious did you have some low moments where you were like what the fuck am i doing amen (laughs) absolutely i i think um Look, the first thing you did is look and consider my age and then you thought, shit, what am I doing with my life? And I think that's the wrong way to look at it because I thought the same thing about you, this incredible podcast, the, the job that you've got, the amazing creative agency sort of thing that you run. It's it's all subjective, right? And everyone's going to judge the people around them and think that they're killing it and then they'll look inside and go, no, I'm not. But that's that's what we're almost trained to do and, and it goes back to that social media conversation and, and we are constantly comparing ourselves. I've kind of taken this question the wrong way and I forgot what you asked me in the first place. But <laughs> what were the, your low moments? Low moments. Here we <laughs> low go. Moments. Low moments, yeah. So consider yourself 27 years old. Me? Yeah. Well, just put, put oh, the, okay, the okay. listener and, and you, put yourself yeah. in this situation. You're 27 years yeah. old. You've just moved, you've just quit your job yeah. at, a, at a public health hospital as an occupational therapist and you've just decided that I need to make the jump into taking this sort of idea to the next level whatever that is, whatever you're in, then you have to live with your parents for the next 18 months and you have to earn fuck all money and you've got to get by doing, you know, long hours, 10 to 12 hours a day just pushing through all the work to, to set up that ambitious goal. It was, it was tough and it was really hard. I, I found it was incredibly isolating. It was really hard to stop and, and look at the big picture sometimes because you were just stuck in a rut and – I found that I wasn't surfing for weeks on end. And for me, that's a part of my own journey where I know I have to surf every day to feel good. If I'm not feeling good or if I'm feeling really tightly strung, my wife will read it straight away and she'll go, get out of here and go (laughs) surfing. You're a better human when you get back from surfing. So I'm not talking to you until you go surfing. And, And that accountability is also great to have people supporting you around. But, yeah, the low points are something that people often shy away from. They almost say, I've got to avoid at all costs getting to that point and, and I never want to be in that place where I'm, I'm feeling dark or I'm feeling like a bit too reflective. But at that point you have an opportunity to, to learn the feeling as well as starting to realise what's missing. And what was missing for me was 
those personal connections with friends that I'd overlooked for ages. What was missing was my own community, that that sense of independence and having my own nest. So moving out and moving back to the the, the city life and and having the the connections around me was really important. But I also found that when I did that, it wasn't what I was expecting. And so it was a little bit tough because I had this this probably a false perception that I was going to get back and have these incredible strong friendships and relationships and people change, people move on, yeah. relationships die, new ones build and flourish. So it's a it's a dynamic process and it's this this cyclic process in life which it's definitely not linear. And and friendships, connection, even like cycles of our own journey aren't on this spectrum that's like a straight ruler. It's like a whirlwind that's going around and it's going up and it's going down, it's going around and back to back to the other places. Yeah. It's pretty cool to think about it like that, but it's also daunting at times. Completely. So when you say that you moved back to your parents, you moved back to Newcastle, right? Is that where your parents are? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I lived in Newcastle for almost 18 months. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Newcastle compared to what you've seen being in Sydney? It was really cool. I loved it. We we lived half an hour out of the city, so it was a, a beautiful natural environment where we had the beach at our doorstep. We had the bushland. We had mountain biking tracks there was plenty of things to do and we'd find ourselves you know decked out in mud till the sun went down but when you come to a big city you realize pretty quickly who who's not from there and who's grew up there and it's it's quite I feel bad to, to make judgments like that but it's pretty easy to see the down-to-earth nature of people that are a country lifestyle or even just more regional because I definitely wasn't from the country it was an opportunity to to do life in a very laid-back way I think in a in a community that which was beautiful, it was Caves Beach, and I, I love the place. But beautiful. it's it's also um, you know, important for me to be where the city is, where the work is, and and that's where the tough juggle is. One thing that you're doing, and I really wanted to talk about it with you, is that you wrote a very very cute and and funny book, but also very serious in in what it's talking about. Uh, I think it's called Stand Up, Stand Up. Yeah, you got it. You know it. <laughs> Stand Up something. I, you have done your research. I've done my research. <laughs> uh, I actually want to get it for one of the guy I've hosted on the show. He's got a, a three, two-year-old. Um, Is that Ben? Sorry? Is that Ben? It's Clayton. Uh-huh. And he's got a, a son, two-year-old, very, very cute, uh, called Phoenix. And, uh, and the discussion we had was um, how do you raise a good man? In delight of uh, everything that's been happening that we talked about in the media, whether it's how we treat women but also accepting others for who they are and embracing diversity because Australia is becoming a way more diverse uh, country. Mm-hmm. I think there is something that you're tackling in your book that is even, I don't know, even more crucial but absolutely fundamental like how do we embrace vulnerability and how do we teach kids to embrace all of the emotions they're going to go through in life, the shit, the good, the ups and the downs, everything. Yeah, absolutely. The book's called Stand Up, Stand Out and it's based on the – it's a it's roughly a true story in my eyes of the the idea of um, Grant Trebilco who founded OneWave and we did a lot of work together in building up OneWave over the last, you know, five years. And – his story is one of, of, of real diversity in, in having bipolar and dealing with a lot of challenges, but he used surfing as a way of managing that. And so the way I've created the book is actually using birds to communicate emotions that, that humans experience. And the rationale for the whole project was that my mother is a teacher and she's seen that children are not learning 
mental health and well-being at school in the way that they should. And it was basically a couple of conversations I had with friends who were writers and her, and it was just like this is something that's missing. And in order to be able to change the way that we're learning about mental health, we can't do it in high school because we've already learned so much and we've already almost taken on the behaviours and traits of our, our parents. And some are good, some are really bad. But at, the, at that point in our lives, we have to learn for ourselves what mental health and wellbeing is. And so the idea of Stand Up, Stand Out is a book for children aged six to nine in, in an official sense, but I've got adults who are absolutely in awe of it. And it's about being able to start those really important conversations and help people realise that what they're feeling is totally not alone. They are not alone at all in feeling that, should I say. Now, the way that the birds are actually communicating this throughout the book, there's, there's Fiona the flamingo and her legs are like jelly legs and she's got anxiety and, and they shake it, but she makes friends with the butterflies on the page, but they're a metaphorical butterfly in her belly, which is representing the anxiety. So it's a way of being able to creatively draw out these metaphors and ideas that children can grasp onto from a very early age that, oh, if I'm feeling nervous or worried, then my legs are going to shake. And instead of having that really hard conversation about I've got anxiety and this is what I need to do about it, it's starting that from that early age. But the idea is that as they grow older, there's actually stage one, two and three in primary school where these people can talk about the concepts in a little bit of a different way. Yeah. So Fiona's legs is not just about what jelly legs then, it's about worry and, and anxiousness and, and then it turns into a proper anxiety and explaining that to people who are at the age where they can understand it. So my goal is to really shift the dial in the way that children are learning about mental health and giving teachers the resources and ability to be able to do this stuff really comfortably with the skills that they've got. So they don't feel overwhelmed. They feel like they can actually do this as part of their lesson plan without having to bring on a whole lot more education and understanding to make it happen. Yeah. One thing that it makes me think about is um, I, I had this conversation maybe a couple of months ago with a woman that had been writing books and I think was thinking about doing a podcast. And one thing that she noticed or she heard from a guy is that um, the guy was explaining that it's not that he doesn't necessarily want to express his emotions, that he doesn't have the vocabulary to actually explain what he's going through as if it's another language that he can't use. And when you were talking about teaching kids um, the different emotions, is that also probably a way to give a bit of a dictionary on, on how to express their emotions? Yeah. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is, Cece. Yeah. The idea of children being able to communicate what they're feeling is very important and it's a way to be able to start the dialogue and it's a way to be able to communicate but also for parents to understand how they can start to breach these conversations with their kids. Yeah. So there's discussion guides for the parents and, and ways for them to go, well, I don't have to feel anxious about this either. But, for example, if you are learning about mental health and wellbeing from your parents or your parents' parents, You'll probably walk down the street, you'll probably come across a homeless person and your four-year-old child might say, you know, mummy and daddy, what's this person doing sleeping on the street? I've never seen that before. And they'll, they might say, oh, he's crazy, like come over here and they'll shoo their child away from that person and do like a wide walk around. Whereas the conversation could be so different with the same interaction in saying that, oh, this, this man's had a tough life and, and he's just, you know, homeless at the moment. He might have found it really tough to blah, blah, blah. But there's a different dialogue around the same yeah. thing. Yeah. And doing it tough, you know, going through a really bumpy period, whatever it is that you describe to your child, they can then start to realise that, oh, he's a person too. And it's important to respect these people around us 
that have it less fortunate than us. Yeah, completely. And I think that's what's something that you were discussing in another interview I listened to is the fact that when you have people that have very important mental health issues, uh, that they kind of maybe build anxiety, maybe they don't shower. And so when you see them, obviously you've got maybe people shying away from them and not really wanting to communicate or reach out to them. But that's even more isolating for them. Mm. And I've definitely been... Uh, conscious of that behavior of being like, oh my God, that person looks crazy. Obviously you want to protect yourself first, but that's that's a behavior that society is taking not like to basically isolate those people even more. Yeah, I find that I'm a little bit of an outlier in that because I'll walk down the street and try and start conversations with those sorts of people, um, which isn't always um, you know, a, a positive thing when I'm in a rush to go somewhere. But a lot of the time when you see someone who's in that situation, you automatically jump to that's that's been their life that's been them for a while but there is so many people doing really amazing things that are homeless or they live without a without a shelter and there's a really strong example of that i i used to live in the suburbs around sydney and there was a, a man there who was um you know very clearly unwell and he was hearing things he was seeing things he was responding and having conversations with with the sky and it wasn't until i i saw him get picked up by his daughters and then I found this out later that that's actually what had happened. His daughters came and picked him up once a week, took him back to their place, showered him up, and then he basically made the decision himself to go and be on the street. But he was a doctor. His previous life was a doctor and he was really successful, but then he had later onset schizophrenia. But therefore is a really strong example that you cannot judge these people yeah. because you've got no idea about their story or their back, their back end. But that, I think that's tough. I don't think society is, is really equipped at the moment. Or maybe it's changing a little bit more and more. But so the reason why I was mentioning is my my sister is a, a psychiatrist, and I've always found I was like, why why is she choosing to become a psychiatrist? Why not a gynecologist or something? And and I thought that it was really really tough. And then she explained to me a little bit what her job was really about, and uh, it really took me a long time to understand why why she feels that there is such a need for psychiatrists to actually understand and how she could help change potentially society and how people are viewing them and helping them uh, being part of society. Sounds like we need more of your sisters in the world. Oh, well, so that, that actually brought me to think about how did you, how did you, why, what made you choose to be an occupational therapist? The journey that I took was quite an odd one. I, I actually wanted to be a physiotherapist on the World Surf League and okay. travel the in world. A, and to be in France. I understand French chicks <laughs> are the best. Hosting <laughs> <laughs> is on at the moment. No, no it, was, it was actually the, the idea of being able to go to Tahiti and to yeah. Fiji and over to Hawaii. It was just such a, a beautiful idea of being able to help people at that high end of performance sport. Yeah. And I always wanted – I love sport. I love exercise and movement. And I, I, I thought I wanted to be a physiotherapist. But I had a little bit of a knack of, of not really putting in the hard yards and I didn't get the marks that I re was required to get in order to study physiotherapy. So long story short, I got told that you should try this thing called occupational therapy. Pretty similar. Do it for a year, then transfer over. And what I found was during that year, first year of university, I loved it. It was just so immersive and it was so me in that you're connecting. It's those people skills as well as the health services and being able to give people the ability to function in ways that we often take for granted. Yeah. Usually it's in a physical health sense. Um, the idea of being able to break your arm and go to school and wave it in the air and, and say, hey, guys, come and sign my cast and you know, be the first person to put a signature on it. 
you've just broken your arm and you're happy to talk about it, but what happens when you've got depression? Yeah. What happens when you, you have something that you can't see? It's invisible. And how do we then, you know, change that? And how do we support that person in getting back to functioning in every way of their life, whether it be through counselling, whether it be through relationships or, or skills building or getting a job, or driving a car? There's, there's many things psychologically that you find really challenging as well as physically. So that's what occupational therapy is and it's about being able to put the physical and the mental and how we become people and do things. But, yeah, that, that transition from physio into OT and then realising, wow, mental health is, is a part of this and I love it and it's, it's so me. The experience that I actually had that took me there was one in, in Broadmoor Hospital in the UK. It's a high-skill forensic mental health hospital and I actually – uh, was in there doing a, a placement for three months, uh, two months, three months, and I actually worked with some of these guys who they classified as patients because they're not guilty due to insanity. Yeah. And it gave me an understanding of, wow, like we can play a really integral role in these guys' life to get them back on the track of, of functioning and being able to do the things that they need to do to get out of here. But that's the far end of the spectrum. But, yes, these guys are, are have been in there for, for dangerous things, but they might be five or ten years down the track. Yeah. And and it's all about being able to then go, well, I'm going crazy in here because I don't have what I need to, to function. Like I don't, can't communicate with people. I can't do anything creative or anything fun. So as an occupational therapist, we open up a whole new world for them, like Aladdin. Are you the genie? No, a whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, this guy is my senior is like in blue and just <laughs> <laughs> No, I wouldn't go imagine, that far. Imagine <laughs> So sorry, on a more serious note, um, is there is there anything that you've seen or heard uh, across the years working with people with uh, mental health issues, disease? Is there anything that you've seen that clearly changed you? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it goes back to working as an occupational therapist, <clears throat> excuse me, in early psychosis. And the idea of early psychosis is working with young people in the ages of 16 to 25 who have had their first episode of going through something um, mental health related psychosis. Um, now, it's hearing things, seeing things, and whether it's delusions, etc. Now, this young guy was incredible. He was he was such an inspirational guy. He he was a surfer previously, and then he'd put on all this weight from medication gain because that's what happens when um, you take the antipsychotic medications most of the time. So in I think it was three months, he'd put on over twenty kilos. And what what I said to him, and my job was actually to to get him back to doing what he wanted to do, not what I thought he needed to do. So I said, "Mate, what do you want to do? What do you want to achieve here?" And he said, "I, I want to get back to surfing." I want, to, I want to get out there and I want to enjoy the ocean. So we actually went surfing. I, I went and took him as part of my job, took him surfing and, and I we talked about risk-taking earlier. That was a really big risk that I took and it was, a, it was a clinical judgment that I made that I was going to take this guy out surfing. I had the ability, he had the previous ability, but yes, there was a lot of associated risks. But that was so outweighed by the gains that we made in that 30 minutes. It was, it was probably so profound that those 30 minutes we spent together I'd say we're more than what we got out of each other in the three weeks, uh, three months of working together. So it's it was it was really powerful opportunity for me to see that wow, this idea of surfing and surf therapy is really strong, and I need to do something about this. And that one experience then shaped the whole next seven years of my life to where we are right now. Has it been seven years already? I think so. Yeah. 
Wow. It was 2011, which I which I kicked off that job. Yeah, so probably even more eight years soon. Mm. Nine? Eight, no. nine, yeah. So what, what's going to be next for you? What's your – it's been seven years. I think it's, it's time to reflect. What's next? I'm sure you've got a vision. We talked about it. You like a good vision. <laughs> I want to see major change in the mental health world, right? Yeah. So I see Waves of Wellness doing some amazing things and being able to reach those diverse communities and, and those remote and regional areas of Australia where we know there's people struggling. They've reached out to us and they've said, do you offer surfing programs in this part of the world where I live in Australia? And we've said, well, actually, no, we don't, but stay tuned because we're really hoping to do so. So through the help of Movember Foundation and through a couple of different partnerships we've got, we're actually now looking at how we can design different models to reach those isolated communities. And it's not only about giving people the idea of surfing, but the the real grand plan will be moving into a broader look at the lens of adventure therapy. Yeah. And using stand-up paddleboarding, mountain biking, mountaineering, bushwalking as a way of being able to do the, the waves of wellness surfing experience in a different setting. Yeah. So that's a really exciting thing for me to, to think about and for us to dive into. Yeah. Me personally, I'd love to do a lot of um, mental health speaking over the next couple of years. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of that and I really love it. I love the chance of being able to go into the workplaces and do keynote presentations to big audiences because you're actually having the opportunity to change the way that people are thinking or considering the idea of mental health and wellbeing. Yeah. And we're doing it in a fun and engaging way, which isn't that sort of boring, oh, yeah, this is how you do it. It's, hey, guys, this is real. Let's talk about it because you sure as shit are not going <clears> to <throat> be able to escape it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, long term, I, I see the idea of being able to use the the children's literature as a way of creating a movement. I'd, I'd love to, I'll say this and I'll look back on this podcast in years to come and go, ooh, I, I said it. <laughs> You're hearing it first here. I want to create a Peppa Pig 2.0 in a stand-up, stand-out kind of version, okay. which is a a cartoon, an app, mindfulness meditations, characters, and being able to move through this journey with the birds, the, the characters, the character choose, or the the an immersion into the idea of mental health and wellbeing for young people. Yeah. So taking that into a, a whole new world, a whole new landscape. Wow. I might be a bit too old for user testing, but never. You no, know, I'll, I'll put my hand up if you need You're it. only as old as you think you are. <laughs> oh. How old are you? <laughs> 12. Well, I'd, no, I'd say I'm about I'm, 15. I think I'm 16. I'm a shithead. I'm a 15-year-old <laughs> shithead who's who's a little bit um, defiant and <laughs> likes to take risks. You know how it is. I heard that you were doing a, a master's in psychiatry. Is that still happening? Have you finished? Have you graduated? Should we celebrate? Hold the phone. Oh. <laughs> we're not allowed to celebrate because I actually, I actually have resigned from it. Oh, wow. I found that I was having so many things, like so many balls in the air, that I was finding it hard to keep them all up. And, you know, the, the juggler drops balls if you can't keep moving yeah. fast enough. I um, I had to prioritise. Yeah. And Waves of Wellness is is where I'm putting all of my energy at the moment and my speaking. So the idea of a master's, which was planning to progress into a PhD, um was one with, which we've had to put on pause. I'm, yeah. I've got some amazing supports around me. My supervisor has been such an incredible support over the years. Um, we've worked together professionally and now he's actually a director of the foundation because because of his professional role. But he was the first person to say, it's okay. It's okay not to, to do this right now because you don't have to try and be superhuman. You don't have to try and do everything at once. Having priorities is important. And what happened then, Cece, I tell you what, what happened after that was just so incredible because I was able to then 
feel this huge balloon popping because all this pressure and all this like it was two years which I was registered with UNSW doing this course and look I'll be the first person to tell you I did sweet FA because I was always putting it off I was just delaying it I was I had all these other things that were higher on my priority list yeah and as soon as I actually said okay I'm not going to do this I'm going to make a decision I'm going to be decisive I'm going to cut it off it was so liberating and it just felt so freeing. You never had a, a sense of, fuck, I'm disappointing myself because I, I like I learned that because I listened to a podcast where you said it. Um, don't you have this feeling of like, shit, I said it publicly, so I actually need to do it? Like it's like a public commitment or something? Yeah, it, it's... It's not an embarrassment. It, I feel it's a sense of accountability that I yeah. have when I say something out loud or yeah. I say it in the, in the media. It's almost a, like so for Peppa Pig. Yeah, because I was going to say ago, Peppa Pig needs to happen now. See, I'll look back at that and I'll go, mm, <laughs> probably shouldn't have said that. Or I'll look back at it and I'll go, that's awesome because I was thinking back in 2019 that this would come to life in five yeah. years' time. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I, I feel that I – by verbalizing things and by sharing them with the people around me, it does, and everyone will feel this, a sense of accountability in that. Now I'm accountable. And I call it, I'm going to digress a little bit here, but the idea of having an accountability buddy is something that I've sort of come up with this year. And the sometimes it's really hard to get up in the mornings, right? Yeah. I suck at it. But people think I'm a morning person because I'm always up early. But those first five to ten minutes when I get out of bed is like razor blades. I'm like, oh, my God, I just want to go back to sleep so badly. I got fuck all sleep last night. But once you force yourself past that, over that little speed bump, you just go, oh, okay, now this is why I'm up. And getting down to the beach and doing all that is so much easier when you have yourself an accountability buddy. So I've got some really close buddies that we surf with all the time and we've got a message to it and it's just like, we go on surfing in the morning, you're going to be there, it's going to be 6 o'clock, you're not going to be late, are you? And then in the morning we're getting each other stoked and we're saying, come on, come on, get out of bed, dickhead. And it's really fun and that accountability buddy is really key. Yeah. But if we go back to what you were talking about before about verbalising it and, and if, we're, if we say it, it's going to come to life, I do feel that sense of I'm bummed. I'm bummed the idea that I had to jump out of my my master's. I'm bummed that I wasn't able to finish it because that sense of accomplishment and, and closing the loop on something is rewarding. But you got to check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? And that's where I was heading. <laughs> so, yeah, it's important to just prioritise. And, and I guess the good thing with a master's degree is the fact that you always have the time, not the time, but the opportunity to do it again. It's not something that is just going to, you know, technology is going to change or this is going to be launched by someone else. I guess you have less of a, a pressure on that on that aspect. You, you can always catch up later on. Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. At least you've got that. And PhD, wow, it's it's a long commitment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and the idea of, of biting off what you can chew is important as well. <laughs> um, I'm guilty as charged of not doing that. I, I find that I, I just I think of an idea and I, I want to get four steps ahead but then – you know, the people around me and my mentors have been amazing at, at saying, no, let's slow things down. Yeah. I think it's something I've seen a lot with, with my business or with some friends is is the urge of doing a lot of things super fast. And I'm not a risk taker like you, so at least this helps me in my day-to-day. But I'd rather take things slow. Um, and a lot of, of people that have created business say, you know what, it's actually fine to take things slow because you might actually end up with a better outcome if you're trying to be in a hurry. 
But nowadays, it's all about doing it fast, you know, like the, the fastest startup that can launch this and become a unicorn in, in that amount of time. But yeah, it's kind of a lot of pressure um, for maybe not even the best outcome at all. I had an amazing opportunity last year of going and studying at Stanford University. And it was a, not an accelerator, wow. but it was an executive business leadership course for nonprofits. Yeah. And during that, you you really understood what that idea of entrepreneurialism was yeah. and that fail fast mechanism that if you're going to give it a whirl, go hard and, yeah. and if it doesn't work, that's okay, but pivot really quickly. Yeah. And I feel like small organisations that can do that will succeed. Ones that try and you know, stay with an idea until it burns to the ground are people that don't have the flexibility and the, the forward thinking to go, okay, that's not working, let's change direction here. It's it's a pressure these days now more than ever that people want, I want it and I want it now, whether it's an article, a press release or whether it's a exposure or a social post, whatever it is, everyone wants to be present and they want it first. But if you know your landscape and if you have solid relationships, don't be afraid to say and set a boundary and go, this is when I'm going to get it to you and that's going to have to be that because my own well-being is more important than being able to make this deadline that's not realistic in the first place. I'm going to say that to my clients next. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sending them an email, excuse me, my well-being is more important than this deadline. I think I'm going to lose a few clients, Joel. Hey, hey! if you lose clients that, that you're open and honest and transparent with, sure. then you're supposed to lose them. I know. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a great, it's a kind of a great phrase to tell them. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be able to do it all the time, but for the people that you know and can trust, like, yeah. of course, someone did it to me last week. And the first thing that I thought was, damn it, like we were supposed to do this thing. It was huge. It was awesome. But hey, that's cool. I really respect that. Yeah. So the second breath was, go you, man, power to the yeah. people. I think back to what you were saying about um, being a speaker for corporate events. Um, it reminds me of when I was back in, in media. Um, we had those events, but I feel like, and I'm not trying to judge, but I feel like the management people are kind of not exactly doing what needs to be done to help from a mental health point of view. It's great that we have a day dedicated to it. We had our UK day. And, you know, they will allow us to have a free coffee so we can go and ask our co-workers, how are you doing? Fantastic. It's really good. But shit, the amount of pressure they were putting on us all the fucking time. I'm sorry, but this is so hypocritical of them to have a day dedicated to our UK or charity and stuff. And I cannot tell you the number of people that I know have shit mental health because of that. How do you tackle that, being a speaker at a corporate event and potentially having a feeling that whatever I'm going to say here, if the management or the leadership just continues on putting pressure on those people, it's just going to go down and down and down and down and down. Mm. I think the first thing to note is that the work that Are You OK have done and are doing is incredible because it's, it's starting a conversation and it's such an awareness piece that is important. Um, Brendan Maher is a mate of mine and he, I love the work that he's done as CEO previously of IOK. And the way that they've approached it is incredible because they've gone, okay, now we've got the conversation started. We know that that day is, is there, but what next? And what are those four steps that we can do and put in place to make sure that on every day of the year, it's are you okay day on every day of the year, people feel like they can ask the people around them, are you okay? And that they know that they're going to feel comfortable in, in how to respond. So it's not only asking the question, but it's being ready for the answer. 
And then it's also being able to check back in with that person and then refer them on if they do require that support. But with the pressure that you talk about with corporates putting it on their employees more and more and more, the way that I approach that is that it's a slow burn. It's not about being able to go in there and and go guns blazing and go, this is Joel, this is what we're going to do about mental health and wellbeing and let's go, go, go. Like Tony Robbins, no, sorry, mate, it's not going to (laughs) work. We're not going to walk on fire today. We're not going to go and do anything of the sort. We're going to we're going to have some really meaningful ways to connect with people, do some breakouts and all sorts of different stuff. But it's going to be planting the seeds, and it's going to be an opportunity to then understand and slowly build on the idea of mental health and wellbeing. The first thing that I will ask as a mental health consultant to a company is, "What's your mental health strategy?" And a lot of the time, it's we don't have one. And it's, it's kind of, it's frustrating, but it's also awesome to be in that opportunity because you've got a chance to be able to morph and mold the way that they're approaching mental health and wellbeing in the workplace. And I love that stuff because it doesn't have to be that dry topic. It doesn't have to be that boring session that's death by PowerPoint. It's more, okay, so let's hear the real life, real life experiences and stories and let's learn how we can put that into our own personal setting. And this is not about surfing and, and waves of wellness. It's, a, it's about using that as one example for, for a reason to then go, oh, okay, so that's how they've done it there. Let's talk about bringing that to the workplace. Let's bring the beach to the office. And it's a really fun way of being able to break down and, and colloquialize or normalize the idea of having these important conversations. Yeah. I've also recently been hearing a lot of people mention this. Gus Wallen from Man Up, for example, he, he mentioned a while ago that there's enough awareness for God's sake. Like we need to now teach people the skills to manage. We need to give people yeah. the, the the background, the learnings and the rationale as to what to do next so that they can then yeah. know how to control themselves or support the people around them. Completely. Yeah, you definitely said something that is very important to me is the fact that obviously with the, with the podcast, uh, the idea of, of hoping that guys are going to speak up a bit more and, and – you know, being a bit more in tune with what's happening rather than bottling up and, and probably do, drinking their feelings away. Uh, but one crucial thing, and I can't answer that because I'm definitely not a professional, is, yeah, it's great. But how, now that we've told them that they need to open up, do they have the tools to be able to deal with those? And I'm not too sure of that just yet. Mm. Do, do you know, do you have a plan on, on how we're going to change the world for that? Uh, it's not it's not a, a plan which is just on my shoulders. I think there's some incredible players in the in the um the landscape at the moment. There's some organizations in the mental health space that I love and adore. They, there's the Banksia project and the work that they're doing around men's mental health. And then there's Batir and and the being heard sort of stuff they're doing with creating their herd and sharing lived experience and storytelling to create that idea of shared experience. Then you've got the the Headspace Youth Mental Health Organisations, which we do a lot of work with that are doing some great stuff in youth mental health. I think it needs to be an industry-wide approach to be able to work together more. Collaborations yeah. is the future and, and that's what I'm big on. But it's also about being able to create programs that are approachable, that are attractive and, and somewhat sexy for people who are going to shy away from accessing the support or the help that they need. Yeah. So we're finding that with Waves of Wellness and our surfing therapy programs that we've got people coming to our groups that should be and would be in hospital groups on the ward or in a community health setting if they felt that they could do that. But they're avoiding it like the plague because it's that white sterile clinical setting where they're just like, fuck that, I'm not going there and you'll have to drag me in kicking and screaming. 
So instead of being able to get the right support and, and build on those blocks of, of wellness, they're potentially seeing themselves go into a place of darkness because they, they haven't been, um, they haven't felt that that's accessible. So I love the idea that we're, we're going to where men are and that we're delivering health by stealth initiatives. But even ideas like this, where this podcast and asking for a mate, like that's, that's such a quintessential thing. Like, ah, uh, can you tell me about this? Uh, can the, you know, what happens in a girl's period when blah, 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 like, oh no, my mate wants to know. Like, I love what you're all about, CC, because it's so important to, to start diving into these things in a way that's fun and engaging and colloquial, because if we do it the way that history tells us to do it, it's certainly a killer for innovation. Yeah, even. Um, in case people want to contact you or talk to you or, I don't know, phone you, maybe not. Call me. No. <laughs> Call me. Hey. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the work that we're doing at Waves of Wellness Foundation can be accessed via the website mostly, um, foundationwow.org. The social media on Instagram and Facebook is at foundationwow. So you can check out all the work that we're doing. We've got programs across youth mental health. We've got adult mental health, NDIS, veterans and returned servicemen, PTSD with you know, first responders, police ambulance, fire. It's, it's such a, a broad range of, of sort of things that we offer. So if anyone either knows someone who they think they should refer or wants to get involved in either donating, volunteering or being a participant in our programs, then we'd love to hear from you. Amazing. What I wanted to say as well, I think to conclude is, Thank you so much for what you're doing. I think it's amazing. I see your van every day and every day I'm reminded of the work you do. And I think a lot of people are as well. Um, it's very important. So thanks for having created that program. Tomorrow I'll be on the beach doing yoga with Flora Friday. So maybe it will be too late for people hearing that. But anyway, for anyone that wants to join Flora Friday, that's also something that is Uh, aligning with surf mm -hmm. and being able to chat. Yep. We've got yoga, if I'm not too wrong as well. That's right. One wave is all it takes. One wave is all it takes. Yep. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? I think that if you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty as charged here, I don't actually have those important conversations, just like I challenged Cece at the start of today to go and make three phone calls to, to her friends, which she hasn't been calling enough, I would say just step into the unknown. Give yourself a bit of a challenge to go and connect with someone and have a conversation which you otherwise wouldn't dive into. Hey, I heard this podcast where this this girl interviewed this absolute dickhead and and basically like this is what they were talking about. What do you think about that? And and use it as an opportunity to connect with people. You know, today is World Mental Health Day. You're listening to this on Thursday, the 10th of November, 2019. October. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm it's one fine. month ahead. See, I'm it's always fine. looking forward. It's because you're looking forward to November to Movember. Yes, it's exactly, exactly. right. Growing my moustache, my dirty worm. I'm, I'm going to do it. Brilliant. I'm gonna, sister. I'm going to draw a moustache every day. <laughs> I love it. No, I, I would really challenge those listeners to go, yeah. okay, so what can I diff do differently in my life? Because it wasn't until I went, man, I've got to change shit up right now, otherwise I'm going to go south, that I then started to go, okay, I can do life a bit better and bringing the people in and, and sort of getting those communities and connections around me made so much difference. Yeah. I think this is, you nailed exactly what the podcast is about. Thank you so much, Joel. Awesome. Thanks a bunch, Cece. Yeah.